The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. If you are hearing that there's a slight echo in today's show, that that's because um, uh, we, we've kind of come on the road again. But it's it's nothing. It's it's nothing quite like Brighton. We we're not suddenly going to introduce you to twenty five to fifty people around us all, all, all cheering and eating fish and chips. We're actually in in Sheikhev, Sheikhev's office here, uh, which does sound like it's a, a little bit like um, your Spanish place. <laughs> <laughs> We're not we're not quite in the bathroom, but but there's um, but but there's this. It's a big opulent office. It's about this office. Let me describe it to you. This is Kev's office. All right, it's about fifty feet long. Um, we're surrounded by by gold fittings and um, various other things. Uh, and this is this is your office. You sit in this. It's almost like you sit in this whole war cabinet on your own. <laughs> it's yeah. huge. It's huge. Does one man need a place this big? I need it bigger. It's huge. I need it you bigger can, for all my junk. Honestly, you could play tennis in here. <laughs> Unbelievable <laughs> opulence. I love it here. Actually, it's great to get out of the get out of the house and have somewhere to come and work. And what, what's the whole deal with the bath in the corner though? What, what's that there? For? That's when Gemma doesn't let me have a bath at home, <laughs> so I have to come here. So so this week for the next couple of weeks because Kev is on some busy travels at the moment um, I, I've actually brought the outside broadcast equipment to Kev's Shay Kev's and we, we're going to be doing two podcasts from Kev's place and, and then it's all back in the studio again and God knows what happens after that because we are we are going to be doing one of the um, one of them from the ex-weddings yeah how's that going by the way yeah okay we still have a few tickets left so um, you know come along if you're going to come along but yeah it's going good I'm really looking forward to it of course and I think it's uh, yeah it's just a couple of weeks away now I know not, so. Well, it's a little bit longer, but not far. The Fuji cast. Welcome to, what are we on now? Episode, episode 34, Kev. Uh, Kev was really worried because I got one of the episode numbers wrong the other day and your OCD would not allow us to go out of order, would it? No way. And so, no <laughs> I just checked. It is, yeah. 34, episode 34. Um, I, I wanted to, and normally I ask you at this stage who's going to go first, but um, I, I'm going to go first uh, with questions. It's not so much a question, but did you see this in the Facebook group? This came from our friend Glasgow Lee. Glasgow Lee, I yeah. did see this, yeah. After a busy weekend, the news filtered through that a family friend had suddenly passed away aged 19 yesterday. I photographed the family wedding about a year ago, to which I captured some beautiful images of their daughter. They were beautiful because she was a beautiful person with a beautiful soul about her. I've just come from the family home and the words of her mum were powerful. She said, Lee, never forget the gift you give people. We have the most precious of memories of the most precious person in our life because of you. So this is for every single person that documents weddings or family events. Forget forums, forget lighting setups, forget camera brands or presets used, forget the money you've made or the stress you've had to capture the image. Uh, we're all giving people images that they can cling to when needed. We really need to take this knowledge every now and then to remind us why we pick up our camera week in, week out. We're not saving lives, and we've talked about this before, Kev, or curing people, but we're encapsulating a time in their lives that gives them a small amount of comfort at the most desperate of times. I hope this makes some sense to you guys. So that what I wanted to open this week. I know that came in a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. but what a powerful piece of... Well, that's a, it reminds us every time that we, um, that we worry about if we're making any difference or whatever when we go to a wedding or make a portrait piece. Mm. That, that, yeah, it does to people. Yeah. yeah thank you, Lee, for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you go to a wedding and you, the only thing that you're thinking of is whether I can get a fearless award out <laughs> yeah, today. Oh, God, yeah. Try and think beyond that and think yeah. about the actual reason you're there. Definitely. No, really powerful stuff. And it's really reminded me, actually. I, I, when I read that, I thought, God, yeah. 
Because we, we, I know I do. Do you? Do you? Sometimes you're at a wedding, you're thinking, oh, just, uh, yeah. you know, am I making the images today? Are these the right images that I'm making? Mm. And that reminded me, yes, they are the right images. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even if it's just grandma in the corner having a cup of tea, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really important image. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Well done. Glasgow Lee. So thank you, Glasgow Lee, as he'll, as he'll now be known. Anyway, you can officially do the first question. Okay, so um, this is from John Baisley, and he comes from Mount Gambier in Australia. How Mount Gambier in Australia. Mount Gambier. That's, that's the coolest address ever, isn't it? Or maybe it's Mount Gambier. I don't know. How would you pronounce it in Australian? <laughs> Mount Gambier. Because <laughs> they always go up at the end. It's an up inflection, isn't it, at the end? Oh, but, God, we're going to have somebody like Jeremy uh, Baker tell us uh, off now. I'm not going to try. Yeah. I'm not going to try. Yeah, go on. Anyway, uh, John goes on to say, have been listening to your podcast recently. What a brilliant thing you have both created. Yada, 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 yada. Blah, blah, blah. I've looked at both your websites, and I must say that the images are emotional and inspirational. Now, this special question is for Neil. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Apart from genetics... <laughs> what sound equipment or tips do you have for making your voice sound like maple syrup well, covered velvet? Well, I'm not sure this is the right week to demonstrate that because we're using the outside broadcast equipment and usually we're firmly plugged into um, a, a soundproofed um, office, uh, studio rather, with, with, um, with, with studio linen around us and, uh, and a very different kind of microphone system. Because today, if you're interested, by the way, we're using the uh, Rhodes um, caster, which is one of Rhodes' latest bits of kit. It's a mixing desk with one, two, three, four microphone faders on it, one for a USB in, one for a telephone, which is a really handy bit of kit, mm. actually. <laughs> okay. And and also, <laughs> all right, I'll give up. You, um, but you can also play off little jingles and things like this. I like this. Warning, warning. I like this. The Fuji cast. So it's a good bit uh, of kit, but you're just not appreciating that. I know, I know. Uh, but is he? He's talking about the microphone. Well, no, because actually, uh, when we're at your um, your studio with all of your sound equipment stuff mm. I'm there as well yeah and I don't have a maple syrup covered well, velvet you, you, voice well I mean they used to say certainly in radio if, if, if you smoked you got a really gravelly voice oh, and it would work really well for you 50, 50 a day voice they used to yeah. call it I don't, I don't obviously condone anything like that the other one was we used to say about Bob Harris that he sounded like he'd eaten 20 razor blades <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know it's all about pitch isn't it when you use your voice I think it's about pitch. Proximity is another thing. If you, if you sit off a microphone, obviously today, because we're in quite an echoey room, you'll hear the echo a lot more. But, but equally, the voice is a lot thinner. The closer you get, and this, this goes to anybody that records uh, photo films, if you're trying to record somebody's voice, or if you're, if you're a filmmaker, the closer you get the microphone to the voice, the talent, the voice box, or whatever you want to call it, the richer uh, it is. So it's about proximity. So... Uh, microphones closer to the voice will, will, will have a better proximity event that, uh, effect than when, if you back right off. So I think that's the, um, that's the idea. And slow down. Finished? Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Is that the question? That was the end of it. That was it. Thanks, Right. Uh, Jody. hi, Neil. Hi, Kev. How are you doing? I'm really enjoying your beautiful podcast. Whose idea was it? I don't know. Whose idea was it? Well, I think it was yours. No. Was yeah. It, I think didn't it, it really yours. come from the, the we ex-weddings last year when we were in the car? And we, we, yeah, I we, suppose. There was a very formative start of an idea of. Yeah, but there's no way that I would have done this by no. myself. No way. I'd have been too scared. Well, so okay. I'm fairly sure that if, but, we were, if we were divvying up the, um, the shares, it would be 51% <laughs> to you, 49% to me. All right. I'm looking for uh, an audio recording setup. For, oh, it all started with audio this week. Sorry. 
wasn't planned like that. Audio recording set up for, for interviewing outside. Although, Kev, you do this as well. Mm-hmm. I've listened to the episode with Sydney photographer Marcus Anderson. Oh, we did the street walk, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you got a nice interview outside in town. Which setup did you use or would you recommend? Quality of sound is important. What do you use, by the way, when you're doing your, um, your sound recordings out and about? I've got a um, little oblong thing it's silver um, right. it's got a couple of little <laughs> mics on the end that you can twiddle around and do you actually know what you use not really you don't I just, no I just whatever you tell me to buy I buy okay. Sen- in, the, in the studio in here when I'm doing my YouTube oh stuff, you're talking about when, you, when you're pointing a microphone at yourself yeah yeah um, okay well that you're using a Rode NTG microphone for that aren't you yeah but shotgun mic I have a Sennheiser do you have a Sennheiser thing. lapel microphone as well yeah alright okay so yeah. f- for, for that particular one Jody I used a uh, Again, this is like an advert for Rode this week. Um, I used a Rode lavalier microphone plugged into their F1, which is a, a natty little small unit, um, and, and it comes with a lavalier's lapel microphone, and that's how I recorded those. Disadvantage to that was that it picked up an awful lot of the outside world. We did have a couple of people saying, oh, I couldn't always hear what was going on because the city was really busy and really really noisy and that can be a problem but uh, that's what we use for that anyway away from sound go on Kev you must have a non-sound one now uh, I have indeed this is from Marcus can I borrow the company pen by the way Marcus go ahead. I gave you one you got the <laughs> coffee and this <laughs> supply of pens my coffee's great no the coffee's great but look, look espresso is like eating a, a fun Twix isn't it <laughs> one bite and it's gone that's what keeps me going yeah okay so um, Marcus Cohen from Leeds says hi chaps my question is about website creation i'm trying to get a decent website up and running and i've been quoted one and a half k obviously having a great shop window is critical but would you advise trying to set something up myself and what product is fairly straightforward and intuitive to do this so my take on that is yes it's going to be a lot cheaper and possibly easier for you to do it yourself but with a huge caveat and that is only if you're capable there is absolutely no point in spending two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, months, years, whatever, struggling with your own website when you can just pay somebody one and a half grand to do it, for sure. Is one and a half grand a good amount of money for a website? Depends what they're going to deliver. Yeah. But, I mean, one thing to be very careful of, there's a lot of, and I'm not say, saying that this is the, the, the company that Marcus is thinking of using, there's a lot of companies out there that essentially will charge you to just set up WordPress and install a template, right. which is the simplest thing to do in the world and free. So you might as well be doing that yourself. If, if, if you're going to employ a company to go do that or maybe yeah. organize a Squarespace site for you, and that's a waste of time, isn't it? You could do that yourself as a creative. Yeah, yeah, but not everybody can do it. That's the thing. And, you know, I, I can, you can, a lot of people can, but not everybody. So just be careful what they're providing for you. Uh, if one and a half grand includes setting up the website and building pages, putting in good architecture, good URL structures, then that seems reasonable to me. Um, but I, I wrote an article a long, long time ago for a professional photographer magazine called Are We the Uncle Bobs of Other Industries? <laughs> and, you know, we always talk about Uncle Bob coming to weddings with his camera and, you know, or, or losing a gig to somebody who's, uh, you know, brother's got a good camera. Sorry, we can't. We're not going to use you. My brother's got oh, a really good camera. Dear. And, you know, I feel that we are the we are the Uncle Bobs of lots of industries. You know, if you yourself spend way too much time and don't do it very well building your own website you're the uncle bob of the website industry yeah so my answer is it does depend on your your ability marcus i would say myself personally i do them all myself but but i have a background what what should a good website have obviously it's got to have for photographers it's got it's got to have um, a really good gallery 
It's going to have a contact page, uh, maybe have a film page, going to have an about page. What, 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 what essential pages would you be looking I, at? Well, if I was starting from scratch, I, the content would be secondary. The, the thing to be the most important thing at the moment is speed, is performance, mobile friendly delivery. All of that stuff is far more important. More actually. important than a, a big blog or something. Yeah, because really? if, if nobody, if Google's not ranking it because it's too slow right. or it doesn't load on mobile devices, then <laughs> what's the point? Does Google ra- rank um, speed above um, the amount of content blogs? Do you think it's it's certainly one of their higher priorities now? I don't know. Nobody would know that with the, the exact algorithm, but certainly, you know, you should all be looking at Google Page Speed testing and you know making sure that your websites are are either in the brown or the green category on that page, right. Google Web Page, uh, Google Page Speed test. Anything lower than that is going to really be detrimental. And if you are writing blogs, what, what's the best? Um, what, what's the best tool to have for? Is Yoast still the best tool to have for for for, for, for correcting? You know how long your post is, what's missing from it, uh, and all that that advice that Yoast gives out. Well, so Yoast is a WordPress plugin. It's not available on Squarespace, for example. And Yoast is a advisory tool that will give you guidelines to how your blog post should look. And and you're quite right. It will say you know you need to do a minimum of 300 words, etc. However, even Yoast itself has changed its kind of um, attitude to that. And now call, you know, it now says this is advisory rather than this is what you should be doing. Because they know that actually you can have a blog post with just two words on it. As long as if it's getting shared, if it's gone viral, if it's got a lot of traffic, then that's all it needs. It's, it's right. not necessarily about the, the words in the first place. Yeah. For us mere mortals that generally are cert, you know, well, thinking about people who are going to the Internet and typing in. I don't know, wedding photographer in Malmesbury or something, then, you know, you, you obviously need words and content. Yeah. But your pictures need to load quickly. Your website needs to load quickly. 90% of people will have your first impact will be on a mobile device. Okay? Mm. They may then go and look on a bigger device, but 90% will look on a mobile device. Because we like to think that people um, pour over our images when they get home on big 27-inch monitors. Yeah like what we have but but it's, that's just not the case is it this is why I don't like those gallery plugins that you get I can't remember the name of them and perhaps we shouldn't mention them but you know those ones where you can throw all of your images into a plugin yeah. and it will lay them all out and you'll have some small images and big images and yes. all that kind of stuff yeah. looks terrible on a mobile phone yeah. you can't see any pictures they're too small so I do all mine individual full size scroll down the page yeah I have a scroll mm. I mean effectively what I try to do is replicate what looks like a blog yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's it. Okay, thank you for your question. Um, this one's from a, a doctor. Get you, Kev, because he's one of your fans. Dr. Salt Girikovitz. Kev, you are one of the photographers. Well, one of the photographers. The other is Sean Tucker, who encouraged me. <laughs> Sean's become a bit of an established name on this now. Who, um, who encouraged me to try photography as a new profession. I'm 41, originally a lawyer, but I've never found beauty or real joy in, in that field. I've always thought that uh, for an introvert person like me, it's not an option to be a wedding photographer. Looking at the images I see of yours, there's uh, another way to be, to be a photographer without being in the spotlight. A few days ago, I applied a, a, a phot- for a photography school in Hungary. Um, you can't be a professional photographer, you see, without any certification. I didn't know that. It's interesting. What a great Whoa, idea. Oh, that is different. Bring that rule here. I think the, the horse has already bolted from that one. Mm. I'm, I'm grateful um, to you for, for that, so thank you. The future will tell how it uh, all works out, but my first step has been made. We'll see. How strange is it 
Um, oh, yes, it's talking about marketing for, for documentary photography. How strange is it that a YouTube channel would change somebody's life thousands of kilometers away? That's nice, isn't it? See, you've changed his life. Huh. So you, you to blame. Um, now, my two questions. How can you avoid not being obtrusive during the ceremony and capture the most important moments at the same time? If you have a prime lens, you can't be that far from the happenings. Um, or what's occurring but uh, if you go closer the guests would see see you in, in, instead of the bride's face so uh, let's let's deal with that one there's two questions how can you avoid not being obtrusive of course having a prime doesn't mean you have to work with the 24 what's effectively a 24 or 35 millimeter focal length in old-fashioned full-frame terms hmm. um, it, it can be an 85 prime it could be a 135 it could be a 100 it can be a can't yeah. It? yeah, but then you just become voyeuristic the longer it goes, the longer the lens is. Um, I would say the answer to that is that it's impossible during the service, during the ceremony, to be invisible. Um, you know, you're there to do a job, you're likely to be at the front of the church. Yeah. Um, what I find, though, is that that immediate melee before the ceremony starts, I can generally buzz in around the pews and, you know, kind of take close-up pictures. People are hugging each other, saying hello, they haven't yeah. seen people for years. And then immediately after, when well, the Which service, focal length are you using for that? 24. Uh, 23 mil 23 so 35 35 equivalent yeah so the immediately after the service then when the the hugging hopefully the hugging and all that kind of stuff starts the hugathon then I'll typically depending on the light and and where the position of the people are but I'll typically go behind the bride it's the bride that's key for me at this point so the groom generally goes off and checks his mobile phone for the football squad and stuff so I'll I'll be behind the bride and what I'm looking for then is the the, um, reactions of the people approaching her and at that point the bride has no idea I'm there of course and you know because I've sold myself as a discreet documentary star photographer the last thing she wants to see the first thing she comes out to the church is me pointing my camera in her face and so you know I actually have these conversations with them generally during bridal prep when I turn up to bridal prep I say look this is the most difficult part because obviously I'm a you know big fat hairy balding old <laughs> geezer uh, you know with some clothes that don't quite fit me and stuff uh, and, and the Columbo look yeah the Columbo look just one more thing and uh, you know when I'm in this this room with you know four, five, six beautiful yeah. bridesmaids who are all and you makeup on and stuff and you and me yeah and so it's impossible to hide you know and so I say to them then look this is the most difficult part you know you you, you, you have to try and get used to me being here right now but throughout the rest of the day hopefully you won't really notice me and you know that that kind of lays the groundwork for that so it's you know it's it is impossible to be invisible don't don't worry about that and that's not a thing it's it's something we would all love to be able to do but it's not a thing so you know you have to do what, what you can within the the remits of what you're shooting do you know i had a run of of weddings where um the vicars and the priests were with vicars not priests um because we're talking about cv churches okay absolutely um were, were fantastic and then i've had a, a run over the last three weeks where they've been a Appalling and really difficult to work with. And that's not because I've gone in there as a bombastic photographer expecting to be stood at the front or anything. But when I've asked that question, the question I always ask is, where can I tell the best story? Because I got fed up of asking the question, what are the rules? Because if you ask what are the rules, people will, will invariably give you something you don't necessarily want to hear. But if you, if you um, offer them an opportunity or, or, or if you give them a challenge by saying, where, now where can I tell the best story? Where can I get the best expressions? Then they have to think 
differently from the car park. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's essentially what I've received. But and I was I was thinking about your problems recently because we were talking about them, and I think I know why this has happened. Why? Because it's the end of the season. It's the end of the summer season. Oh, do you think so? And they've probably had two, three, four. When some yeah. of these busy churches, weddings a week, yeah. and you know you're you, you're going to get you know in some cases they will have had bad experiences. Yeah, with but I but I always say because when well, they give me that, I always say you've had a bad experience, haven't you? And they say yeah. Well, then they'll uh, trump out that ridiculous story that they must have read in the Church Times at one stage about somebody that, that rested a, a Canon 70 to 200 millimeter white lens on their shoulder. You've, you've heard that one. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I always counter that with, yeah, but you know what? I had the worst turbulent experience I ever flew recently, but I'll still get back in a plane and I'll do it again next year. You cannot base one flight on, the, on, the, on all the flights. And I'll say it slightly differently to that. But, but it, it, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed of late, a few of them have said, well, you know, the problem is if you stand up the front, everybody's going to be looking at you. And I'm thinking, no, no more so than they'll be looking at the organist. Yeah, or the and priest. Yeah, or the priest. <laughs> yeah, That's what I would say to him. Yeah. Although I have to say, I've never really had an issue. I do, I do normally just go in. If they say go to the back, you don't argue, do you? Well, I don't argue, no, no. I will do it. But, but what I Sorry, always do... Sorry, debate, debate. When I, when I go and see the, the priest and the registrars, is I only take my X100F with me. Right. I leave all the other cameras yeah, yeah, in a bag. Yeah, yeah. Just walk up with my little X100F. And, um, and I say and I start the conversation by saying something like I know I don't look like it but I am the official photographer <laughs> Tim, that's a really good way of doing it and then they usually relax yeah. that's a really good way of doing it okay now um, Salt uh, Dr. Salt had a second question I know that you use the 35mm 1.4 effective focal length 50 and I understand how important a fast lens is but the focus system on the 35mm f2 is much quicker my dilemma is that if there's a low light situation the 35 1.4 hunts much more and I could miss an important moment so what's your experience how often do you miss at 1.4 in low light actually I very rarely use that 35 1.4 I use the 23 1.4 right um, I do have the 35 and I have the 35 f2 as well um, but you're right the f2 lenses typically are quicker to focus although that's been much improved with the uh, fourth generation sensor on the Fujifilm cameras I'm because I'm a bit lazy, I typically load my cameras up with the fastest primes. So mm. I usually shoot 23 1.4, uh, 56 1.2. That way... That's well, not lazy, that's considered. That way I don't don't have to think about changing them when yeah, it does yeah. get a bit dark later because I can't get anything faster. You, you often keep three cameras around you, don't you? You've got the, the X100F, which is your 35 focal length. Mm. Um, 23, so 35. Yeah. Well, and, you, and you keep a 56 mil usually on another one, don't you? So I will... I wouldn't say I often use three cameras, but I if I've got... Um, if I'm wearing a jacket or something like that, then I'll, I'll usually slip an X70 or an X100F in the jacket pocket. Um, but that depends obviously on the time of the year, what I'm wearing, the, the environment. Sometimes I like, I think maybe I'm going to need a bit wider, so I'll use the X70. Uh, but typically it's a two camera system. Well, thank you for your question, um, doctor. And uh, for that reason, uh, it was a good, good question. Lots, lots of parts to it. So we're going to send you one of our simpler camera straps. Thank you very much. I meant to mention right at the start, it, it's a bit confusing being in Kevin and Shea Kevin here with uh, surrounded by opulence and baths and stuff I completely forgot to say that thank you to Simpler Straps for letting us give away a simpler camera strap each to our favourite email 
questions of the week. And so we're going to be sending you one of those. Uh, right, interview time. Um, about a month back, uh, we had a suggestion that we should talk to Jeremy Delder. Um, and uh, he, of all the um, all, all the knowledge when it comes to calibrating screens and working from good monitors. And as I look around me in Shea Kev, I can see two thumpingly good monitors. Tell us what those two are there, Kev. Yeah, BenQ SW27 on the left. That's nice. the big, big one. Uh, no, sorry, 3.2. It's the 32-inch. 32. 32-inch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the one on the right is the 27-inch equivalent. So, yeah, yeah they are they are very good. And I honestly... Have you calibrated? I have calibrated with the X-Rite um, eye display. That's what I use. Right. It's amazing. It really is amazing because those monitors, although they are reasonably expensive, I mean, the 32-inch one, I think, is about £1,500. <laughs> but to get a 32-inch ISO, you're looking at four and a half, five grand. Yeah. Um, and they do come with hoods. You know the um, the editing Yeah, I noticed you don't, you don't use your hoods. No, I don't use them because I feel like I'm in a little kind of dark room yeah. and I, I don't like it. So I'd rather just close my blinds. That's well, all that light's coming off your gold. Um, stuff here. It must be really difficult to work in all this platinum gold you, you're surrounded by. Yeah, that's right. All right. So I realise that for some people, talking about uh, <laughs> calibration might not seem like um, it's something that is as, as exciting as talking about, with no offence meant to Jeremy here, um, talking about, say, I don't know, war photography or, or those other interview subjects that we have. But I think over the next half hour or so, you're going to learn some really important stuff here. It certainly opened my eyes, um, quite literally, to, to what it means to calibrate properly. The Fujicast. So, Jeremy, I, I would imagine when it comes to things like uh, color calibration, calibrating screens, and so on and so forth, um, m- many people, including myself, there's, there's a slight air of we looks looking skyward and thinking, I must. I wonder what's going on with tea. It's one of those subjects, isn't it? Uh, look, it is, and it, it has been a vexatious uh, subject for photographers and image makers and printers for the oh, approximately 20-odd years that I've worked professionally in the area. Um, so, you know, it, it is a bit of a kettle of fish or a Pandora's box, if you will. Well, we, we had some questions, as you know. Thank you very much for agreeing to, to answer these. I'm going to start with Dennis Skyam. Why should I colour calibrate at all? Now, we knew we'd get a question like this. I've gone for years having never done it and have managed just fine. What sort of tangible benefit will I get from investing time and money in colour calibration? Now, you've kind of answered this a moment ago. For me, in some ways, it's it's the hardest question to answer because for me, colour management is a bit like breathing. I, I've done it and used it professionally for 17 years now and I can't kind of imagine not using it anymore. The The reason that you do it is because you want to pursue quality. So I guess for me, the trigger phrase in that question is I've managed just fine. Well, I'm not looking for just fine. You know, I'm looking for best possible quality. I'm a fine art printer. That's the main aspect of my business um, these days. And before that, I was a working commercial photographer. So for me, it's it's very much uh, about wanting to achieve something that is a lot better than just fine. It's about wanting to achieve best possible quality in in all parts of the process. So from capture through to editing and retouching through to printing, I want to be completely in control of everything. I want to be the decision maker and I want to achieve the best possible output that modern tools allow. John Baisley, my question to Jeremy for people starting out would be if you were just starting to consider colour consistency and calibration in your workflow from pressing the shutter to printing an image, what would it be in order, um, the, the, the items most important to get the, the most accurate, consistent outcome? 
probably the most fundamental or the, 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 the first thing you should start with is a monitor calibrator. It, it's the basic device that really everybody uh, who wants to manage colour needs. The reason for that is that, that um, your monitor is the one device in your entire tool suite of photographic tools that you're going to use for every single image that you make. You know, um, you're going to change camera bodies, you're going to change lenses, you, you're probably going to change printers, the labs you work with, but your monitor will be the fundamental place that you make most of your decisions at. I mean, that's the whole beauty of, of the raw approach to photography that, that you know, came along in, in the early 2000s, yeah. this idea that you could delay so much decision making to later in the process when you, you had a more controlled and considered moment um, to make those decisions. So, you know, we used to have to make all those decisions in terms of we would load velvet via film into the camera and that would impose an aesthetic on our work right at the beginning of the process. Well, now we shoot raw because we can do all the things such as setting white balance, you know, adjusting exposure, whatever it is, we can do those later in the process. So your monitor becomes the fundamental tool and to control your monitor, the most essential thing that you can buy is a monitor calibrator. A monitor calibrator is typically, well, in our money, it's about three or four hundred dollars in in UK pounds. I guess that's probably I don't know about one hundred and fifty pounds, two hundred yeah, pounds. Sometimes, yeah, it depends upon the um, the the bits you buy, doesn't it? There's there's some really expensive. It does. Look, there's, there's different levels, yeah, and yeah, yeah. like many things, there's there's some junky ones that are yeah. quite cheap. But to get a, a, a kind of what I would consider a working professional tool, um, something like the X-Rite i1 Display Pro, which no. is really the industry standard. In fact, I was just about to ask you which one you would suggest. So that that yeah, is yeah, the that, one, that is, is for it? sure the one right. that I. Um, recommend you know without wanting to insult other companies too much you've got some companies that are very good at marketing and then you have some companies that are very good at building hardware and X-Rite's really good at building hardware it's it's not the world's best at software but it doesn't really matter because the hardware is fundamentally a, a cut above the rest in terms of, of what you get in terms of consistency um, it's a great little device so for, for you know let's say that it costs you 150 pounds or 200 pounds you get a device that can read really any um, current screen and calibrate it. Now, that includes, you know, really basic screens from the cheapest laptop screen that you might put it in front of, um, right through to the most exotic professional monitors. Um, you can even use it on things like your OLED television sets and so on if you, if you get some aftermarket software for that. But if you have a bad monitor, um, calibrating it is very much the proverbial lipstick on a pig. You know, <laughs> your monitor underneath it is still a pig, even when it's calibrated. So the second thing that you would generally consider is a great quality monitor. And it is arguable that, you know, whether or not you should buy the calibrator or the great monitor first. Um, you, you know, some monitors are specifically designed. In fact, only very few monitors are specifically designed to be colour accurate and for colour accurate use. Those are the monitors that you should look at. Now, right at the top of the pile, we have something like an ASO Color Edge monitor, which has inbuilt automatic calibration, and they—they're the cat's pajamas. They—they are absolutely um, the the best devices uh, in terms of both quality and ease of use that you can get. But they're you know filthy expensive, so a lot of people. Um, look at other brands um, such as BenQ or NEC um, and really between those three bands, Azo, BenQ and NEC, you know, they are the bulk of good quality colour accurate monitors sold in the world today. From one Jeremy to another Jeremy, Jeremy Baker asked you, what are the better screens? How do Apple displays score? How do MS Surface screens score? Now, I must admit with, with the Apple displays, um, I get, I mean, the results between my iMac and my and the laptop they're just entirely different as makes no odds 
Look, an Apple iMac uh, is a great piece of industrial design, and that's about the only um, compliment I can give it from a screen perspective. It's not terrible, you know, um, they are, and indeed, it's actually quite hard to buy a truly terrible screen unless you're buying, you know, really cheap office ones. Um, but it's not good either. And I think, unfortunately, that a lot of Apple people are a bit shocked and depressed when they hear that. But <laughs> compared to the high quality screens, they're not they don't really come into the conversation. First of all, there's no calibration controls. They have um, they have that you know um, glass on the on the front of the panel, which is it's just terrible. Glass turns the panel into a mirror. So if yeah. you're working on a low key image that's full of shadows, you know half of what you're seeing is your shirt reflected in the monitor. It, it it's just fundamentally not designed for color accurate work. It's designed to be high contrast, high saturation, um, and flashy. It's great for games. It's great for browsing the web and watching movies. But it is not purpose built for color editing. In general, laptops are not great for color accurate work simply because, you know, they're affected even with IPS panels and so on. They're still quite affected by angles. Um, so basically, you know, unless you're quite sure that you're always looking perfectly perpendicular into the laptop screen, um, you're going to experience some change in contrast and probably some change in color just because the angle is constantly varying from one session to another. That really means a high quality monitor from someone like ASO. Um, they have their Color Edge series, and you know, obviously, some of them cost many thousands of dollars, but um, some aren't as expensive as all that. And then, if you're looking for something cheaper, you have um, classically the NEC PA series, uh, very popular, particularly in Europe. Um, and although they have somewhat dropped out of the market in recent years, and then you have the the, the newcomer to the color accurate world, which is BenQ, with their PV and SW series monitors, and and you know, they've gone from essentially no market share to about 30 or 40% of the market mm. or possibly even more at this point in the space of about three or four years. They're kind of kind of everywhere lately. Paul Timlett wrote in, says, does Jeremy recommend use of the auto setting? I think I know the answer to this, where the screen yeah. adjusts itself for ambient light. No, in short answer. So you'll find that uh, all the professional um, screens either don't have that feature um, or they have it turned off when you're in the, in the calibration mode. So they automatically disengage it. If your ambient lighting is varying so strongly that it's having a significant impact on, on your ability to interpret the image on your monitor, then you need to control your ambient lighting. You know, you're not in an environment suitable for professional color work um, or, or serious enthusiast color work. You know, I keep saying professional, but really it comes down to anyone, whether or not you make your living from it, who wants to achieve good color. Yeah. If that's the case, you want to work in a, in a controlled environment. Now, that doesn't mean you have to work in a cave, you know pitch dark, all lights off, you know, um, clinically neutral grey worlds, that sort of thing, you know. Um, you just want to apply a moderate amount of control to your ambient light, which might just mean, you know, pulling down your blinds, you know. The one thing you don't want is is the screen attempting to assess the light around your monitor and adjusting itself in front of your eyes. It's very distracting and it makes it really difficult to to make considered um, decisions or to, to trust the colour that's coming out of your screen. Ewan Robertson, he's important because he started this whole thread and he's he's the man that introduced me me to you. Um, oh, great. I work from a laptop, he writes. When, when in the office it's connected to an external monitor, should I be creating different profiles for laptop screens for each location I'm working? Well, we kind of answer the laptop thing now. That's not the most perfect way to work. What, what should we take as a base to work from? Should it be our primary edit screen or a print or an average? of all those screens put together? It's actually a really good question, um, you know, and we have covered it to a certain extent. But 
to me, a laptop is is only a, an essential decisions tool. So I, would, if I'm forced to use a laptop, I won't make decisions about color on it. Um, so you know, for me, a laptop is a tool that I will, yep, zoom in and check the focus if I'm working tethered, or I will, you know, review my night, my my shots um, in the evening in my hotel after I've, I've, you know, spent the day out on at some you know fantastic monument and shot a whole lot of photos. I will only do shot review on it. I won't do color work. I will save that work to when I'm back in front of a real computer with a real monitor that's properly calibrated. A couple more questions. Michael Clark, I recently bought a calibrator after looking online. I saw most people recommending not to use the software the device came with, but instead to use an open source program called DisplayCal. It seemed to work pretty good for me. It removed the blue tint my laptop screen had and prints are more accurate and still... I need to, to order a couple of test prints, though, to make slight changes, but far more accurate than before. Is this a good approach? It is a good approach. So there are a few different types of monitor calibration. Um, most of the monitors that we've been we've been talking about up until now have uh, a calibration or have, have a facility for a type of calibration known as direct hardware calibration. So that's calibration where you use a calibrator such as the, the aforementioned i1 display pro to read the colors coming out of your monitor and then the calibration adjustments are done directly in the monitor's hardware itself that's both the easiest and best quality type of calibration but you have to have a monitor that supports that type of calibration and again there's only a few types really the types we've already gone through now if you do have one of those monitors then you definitely want to use the direct hardware calibration system that they provide. So that would be ASO Color Navigator or Palette Master from BenQ or SpectraView from uh, NEC. On the other hand, if you have a regular monitor and you're doing what's called traditional software calibration, now that, that's a different process where you still have a sensor and it still reads the, the colors that come out of uh, the screen, but instead of the adjustments being done in the monitor's hardware, the adjustments are instead done to the signal going from the video card to the monitor. So it's subtly different, but it's it's not quite as high quality, um, uh, but it is still effective. And if you're doing software calibration, then DisplayCal is, is, I think, the bargain of the century in the sense of it's completely free. It's a magnificent piece of open source software. It is a graphical user interface that's built on top of a, of a almost legendary color management system called Argyle um, CMS that was developed actually um, by a guy called Graham Gill here in Australia. Um, he's a bit of a genius. Um, he wrote, uh, long ago, wrote this free color management um, series of libraries and tools uh, called Argyle and uh, has made that freely available on Windows, Mac and even Linux um, for, for many years now. It's uh, a tremendous effort and um, he should be um, uh, given full credit for an amazing amount of work. Mm. And then a, and a guy called um, Florian Hirsch built um, a nice graphical user interface on top of that. And that is DisplayCal. This is a, 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 an excellent monitor calibration system that is free. Uh, it's comprehensive, multi-platform, and the beauty of it is it has the same user interface no matter what monitor you use it on or what platform you're using it on. So you only have to learn it once. Another great thing about um, Argyle and DisplayCal are that they will often um, open up the abilities of a cheaper calibrator and essentially turn them into a more expensive one. So for example, in the spider range, you have three levels of calibrator. You have the express, the pro and the elite. Um, and essentially, you know, you might spend $150, $250 or $350 for each of those levels. But the hardware is identical. 
so the, it's only really the software that's different. And if you're using this free aftermarket software display cal, then your your um, Express turns into an Elite, you know, for free. Um, so I think display cal is is just a, a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I thoroughly recommend that if you are using traditional software calibration. So if you're calibrating just something like a standard Dell Office monitor, or or you know you've just bought a, a classic Samsung or a Zeus uh, monitor, then um, you're going to be using software calibration. And yep, using display cal um, is a great way to go. And ideally, you would still use it with a really great sensor like an i1 Display Pro. But you know, even if you if you start with the most humble of sensors, something like a Spider Express, um, you uh, you end up with a pretty comprehensive um, calibration. Uh, system and as you can see from from Michael's results, it, it already starts to make a tangible difference. You know, um, he's getting to the point where you know a blue tint. Now, a blue tint is a classic problem. LCD monitors, particularly cheap ones, are made with cheap LED backlights, and cheap LED backlights output a whole ton of blue light. Now, you can see this. Um, the quickest way to demonstrate or to to observe this in in nature, as it were, is if you look at Christmas trees, modern Christmas trees. When people put um, lights on those trees, they put a you know the little red, green, and blue LEDs. Have you ever noticed just how intensely strong the blue ones are compared yeah. to the other two lights? Yes, yes. That's because LEDs natively just output a crapload of blue light. So cheap LEDs do that. Cheap monitors have cheap LEDs in the back of them, which means they tend to be super saturated in blue. When we look at laptops, then it's not all lost. But display cal was something we could, we could actually rescue back a bit. Oh, definitely. You know, you can improve everything, you know, um, um, uh, and it's more important. The lower the quality of the thing that you're starting with, the more important calibration okay. is. You know, it, it allows you to take something that's truly awful and make it maybe acceptable. Last question from uh, Anna McCarthy. I have an iMac and no longer calibrate at all. Loxley, the printer, tweak and print my colour files, and I, I then check them back here. Clients have never complained. This almost takes us back to the first question, really, Jeremy. Uh, no, would, yeah. <laughs> would Jeremy agree that this is maybe a, a matter of how critical your colour faithfulness needs to be in print? There is perhaps a different yardstick for each of us in this. I, I, I do fundamentally agree with that. Colour management is, is is not for everyone. Some people don't want the what they say is hassle uh, and don't want the expense. And it, if you're happy with your results, um, then don't solve a problem you don't have. That's perfectly reasonable. But I, I guess ultimately I, I see the whole thing a bit differently. You know, for me, I don't want to surrender control to, to Loxley, the printer. I don't want to surrender control to anyone. And particularly as a professional photographer, I regard my job as a professional photographer to specify how I want the image to look. And to do that properly, I need to be in complete control of that image. I need to be able to see it properly at my end. I need to be able to edit it accurately. And then I need to be able to supply a file to my client, whether it's a, you know, a, a magazine or whether it's a, a, a person's wedding photographs. I need to be able to supply a file that specifies exactly how that image should look. And I, I simply can't do that if I can't see the image properly. If you're doing photography as a hobby, then you do it because you know you love the hobby and you probably want to bring color management into that hobby because you can improve your craft. You can make your hobby a whole lot more satisfying because you'll be getting better out of it and you you won't be wasting time. You won't be having those you know soul crushing mistakes when you get a print back that's not what you wanted. Um, if you're a commercial photographer, color management is all about saving time and thus saving money money and and really. Preventing you from making a mistake, 
you know, if, if you make a mistake in a professional context, one mistake can lead to a whole line of negative consequences because your customers talk to each other and they go, oh, well, you can't trust the colour coming from that guy, you know, or that girl. Um, I guess, it, you know, if you're a professional, you want to be good at your job and you want to be sure that you know what you're doing. And, you know, mm. like being a dentist, you don't want to go mucking around with a drill in somebody's mouth if you don't know what you're doing. And if you're a working professional photographer, for me, it's about making sure that I know exactly what I'm delivering to my customer um, so that I can be sure that they're going to get a good result and that they're going to come back to me and want me to do more work for them. I want to ask you one question about your company as well, because it seems fair. Um, but I'm just sneaking a, a sneaky extra in here, um, only because I talked about this the other day with a couple of people when we took the Fujicast on the road to Brighton. And we talked a couple of weeks ago, and we, we talked about computational, well, you've talked about computational power. I was talking with some people about my three-year-old uh, uh, iMac, uh, my MacBook Pro, my three-year-old MacBook Pro, any, you've already suggested a couple of reference monitors, but something you think that uh, my my three year old MacBook Pro could deal with in in terms of a reference monitor, something I could just stick on the side when I'm using that laptop. For sure. Look, I, I think the BenQ SW270C is probably the best best value in monitors right now. Now, if, if you really wanted to sort of start humble, BenQ have uh, a model called the SW240, which is a 24-inch monitor. Over here in Australia, it's about um, $700, including the hood, which would mean in the UK, it's probably about yeah, 250 pounds or something. That is the first big step up or the first big step into color accurate monitors. It is substantially better than all the other kind of you know, classic monitors that people come across, Dell UltraSharp, Asus ProArt and so on, none of them are anywhere near as good as the BenQ SW240. So that would be the minimum one I would recommend. You know, the cables in the box, you, you need a, um, you've got a Thunderbolt port on, on a MacBook from that era. So you just need a mini display port to display port cable. It's in the box, you get a monitor hood, um, you get basically everything you need except a calibrator. Actually, I'm, I, maybe mine's a bit newer then because it's USB-C. Okay, yeah, well, if it's USB-C, there's a USB-C cable in the box and, and away you go. Yeah, a USB-C came in sort of mid to late 2017, I think. So, okay, it's not um, quite as old as I thought then. <laughs> the years, yeah, no, sure. The yeah. years oh, look, aren't running well, if it, by. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> if it's USB-C, USB-C MacBook, um, it should even really be able to drive the 4K ones without much problem at this point, to be honest. Um, I feel like a, it's, it's a monster subject and I feel like I've taken a monster monster amount of your time, Jeremy, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of it. I've learned no, all... Look, we've barely scratched the surface, Well, I, I, I realise that. We, we could have done a two hours on this and we'd, we'd still be talking, but I just want to get in a little bit more. I mean, I've, I've learned all sorts of things from you, including the display cow that we, we mentioned earlier, my, following Michael Clark's question, and the fact I'd never heard the, the, the phrase cat's pyjamas used before. It's usually been, <laughs> been, been okay. something else that, that belongs to dogs rather than cats. But um, tell, tell me about your company, what you do, because for Photography for you, as as we completely uh, have experienced through your conversation with us, has rather expanded into into image science, hasn't it? What does image it, science look, do, and how can it help us? Uh, well, for people in the UK, um, if, if that's where most of your listeners really are, um, it can help you by having a very large free knowledge base. So. We currently have around 400 articles, all to do with colour management, um, increasing image editing quality, um, fine art printing and so forth. 
in our knowledge base. So um, that's our primary resource that would help people in your neck of the woods. Um, Image Science is a business that um, I started uh, when I was a commercial photographer and really because I wanted to kind of, well, I was having kids and I wanted to level out my income a little bit. Um, I was a bit afraid of the whole feast and famine um, part mm. of, of professional photography. Um, didn't really suit my personality. Um, so I looked for something that was a bit steadier and um, I had a love of, of fine art printing. And um, now we, uh, we are... We specialize really in, um, well, three things, products, services, and knowledge. Um, so we either sell you equipment um, or we um, use equipment to produce world-class printing. And, you know, um, knowledge sharing and teaching has been at the heart of the business right from the beginning. Um, and, the, the, yeah, the biggest um, practical result of that is a huge knowledge base full of articles. They're all free and, you know, we're open to questions. If you're stuck with anything or it's not working how you expect, then shoot me an email and um, I spend a large proportion of every every day on, on support, both for customers and just for people who find us online and, and have a question because, you know, we love this stuff. It's it's what we do and it's important to us. Thank you, Jeremy, for, for your time uh, in uh, answering questions. And I thought it was a really nice idea, by the way, um, and we should do that more often that uh, if you send the questions in for a guest, I'll go find the guest or, or talk, talk to a guest and it gives you an opportunity to ask the questions that you want to ask. And I thought that worked really well. So thank you very much. If you, if you want... Oh, sorry, Kev. So are you going to calibrate your screens now? Uh, well, <laughs> do I feel like the horse has bolted on that one because I'm using these full um, iMac screens. Um, but you know that my, my wish is to... When, the, when these, these iMacs eventually go... Which they're getting close to doing, with certainly with filmmaking... Um, then I'm I'm making the move. I'm changing to I'm changing Windows. Oh. I am yeah. I'm changing flavour because um, well I'd love to stay. I love the uh, do you know I love the whole Mac system like that. I like the way it works. I like the way it all talks to each other. I'm going to really miss not being able to send send stuff very quickly through the air between the diff- different devices I have. But I, I just can't deal with the expense anymore. Uh. It's it's just become a really expensive item in the corner of the. And if I want to have the sort of power that you have with your machine, I'm going to have to be spending five, six, seven thousand pounds. Mm, no, way more than that for that spec. I couldn't actually. Well, the, the iMac Pro, I would, yeah. The computer I've got there, right in front of us, I couldn't spec up because I tried it just to see. I couldn't spec up a Mac high enough. It, really? it just wasn't possible. Um, and that cost me like best part of three grand. It's yeah. expensive, but it's. You see, I spent three grand on a, on, a, on a machine that's half your power or maybe yeah. not even half yeah yeah so um go. so things have got to change and then i think yeah i'll, I'll be calibrating properly particularly following what uh, jeremy was talking about and some of those some of those pieces of advice we would suggest it doesn't have to be the most expensive calibration um gizmos either which i thought was was really cracking advice so uh so thank you and uh, if you do have suggestions for guests like that and you want to send in some questions then perfect because uh I think that's a, a nice democratic way to work. If you're wondering why the, the show sounds slightly different this week, we are not in my bathroom. Um, <laughs> we, we are, and Shay Kev, we're at, we're at Kevin's studio, which is how many miles away from, um, from my sound? You've got a photographic studio, office space, and, and obviously gold-plated um, tennis court. <laughs> that's, that's why, look, listen. It's huge, this place, like a cavern. <laughs> like a cavern but but how many miles are we apart about 40 miles aren't we no uh, 30 miles takes about an hour to drive yeah no 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 so it's more than i'd say it's probably about nearer 60 kev's got so much on at the moment he's in so much demand that i said for the next couple of weeks i will come across and we'll record the podcast at your place mate which is which is what we're doing and then then we'll, we'll you know 
I always like the pub that's across the road as well. <laughs> so that's lunch. Yeah. Right. Um, your question first. Okay. So I've got a relatively long question from Aaron Russell. No, I know Aaron. Uh, I'm rubbish with Aaron. 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 Well, Aaron. how do you spell it? Double A-R-O-N. It's Aaron. <laughs> Aaron. I think you always try to make a Portuguese name out of an English one. They don't, they don't, make, posh, <laughs> po- they don't make posh names No, everybody we could be called Bob or Kevin. <laughs> Come on. Why not? That'd be a lot easier. Okay, so Aaron Russell says, Hi, Kevin and Neil. I'll get straight to the point. Having, sin- having since switched to Fujifilm at the beginning of 2018 when the X-H1 launched and also the X-T3 with an assortment of X lenses and finally having sold my Pentax 645Z for the GFX 50S, I have totally fallen for the Fujifilm X system and yeah. GFX range. I have no PX, PX? Part, part exchange, my yeah. 50S for the 50R. Right. I prefer the form factor and the okay. rangefinder body. I absolutely cannot get enough of the medium format look and love my 45mm, 110mm, 32 to 64 lenses. Wow. With the launch of the GFX 100 now offering phase detection, autofocus, and five frames per second, is it now time to sell my two X bodies and seven lenses to put towards the, X1, uh, the GFX 100 so I can shoot with the R and 100 exclusively? Bloody hell. <laughs> This man's got a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. I really fancy being able to shoot... T- Securicore must have to carry his camera bag for him. <laughs> wow! I really fancy being able to shoot the entire wedding with the GFX system and separate myself from the competition with the look of the medium formats and increased image quality. So the question to Kevin is, is the GFX 100 going to be able to capture the wedding day moments like walking down the aisle and the first dance now that you're having a play with one? Will it be quick enough is, is his question, I suppose. Yeah, so... Um, I would say not quite. No. I would say close, a lot closer than 50R. Amazing camera, and you'll be able to print huge bus-sized <laughs> images from it. But The thing is, the thing about the GFX 100, it, it is a phenomenal camera, absolutely. It's relatively big, considering compared to the GFX 50R and yeah. the um, XT series. Yeah. But it does have IBS, it does have phase detection pixels, it can shoot. When I was testing it, or when I was testing it, sorry, when I was loaned it, it was tracking the kids around. It, it is absolutely phenomenal. And the point Aaron makes, which I thought was quite interesting, was this idea of separating myself from the competition with the med- look of medium format. And yeah, I think it is a, a, valid, um, a valid argument to say it would separate you from the competition because I don't think there's too many wedding photographers these days that will be able to shoot with 15 grand's worth of bodies no, before no. you even think about the lenses. But good kind of takes you back to the days when, when photographers used to rock up with some Hasselblads and really expensive lenses. Good for him. Good, yeah. good for Aaron. I'm yeah. Aaron. Aaron. Good for, good for him. Aaron probably goes to these weddings in his, uh, in his supercharged Bentley. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so rock, rocks up for, for long distance ones and a jet ranger, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the fact is, it's a 10 grand camera. And for me, I, I would not be able to justify using that at a wedding because of the way I work. I don't think necessarily it means that the equipment is not good enough uh, in terms of speed or pace. I think it's probably okay for in most cases. It's just that, you know... I want to be as discreet as possible and you're not going to be discreet with the That's GFX 100. That's not a discreet setup, no. no. No, absolutely not. And the GFX 50R, even that is relatively big, um, although I do enjoy using that camera as well. So that's that's kind of my my um, downside of it. The GFX, you know, I have toyed with the idea of figuring out which one of my children to sell to get the GFX 100. <laughs> and, um, you know, if, if... Gemma, stop listening. 
if and when um, Jeff Goldblum wouldn't do this <laughs> Jeff Goldblum <laughs> Jeff Goldblum she'd sell me for Jeff Goldblum in, an, in a heartbeat and um, actually maybe that's the way I can do it maybe yeah. if I write to Jeff Goldblum and say to Gemma right I'm going to buy a GFX 100 but I've organised for you to meet Jeff Goldblum she would say yeah, that's alright yeah, yeah yeah but the, the, uh, the expense is rising all the time here mm. yeah you need to sell something you need to sell one of these one of these gold contraptions you have in this office in here one of that door handle over there is probably worth about 10 grand on its own, isn't it? I got that off Aaron. <laughs> when, he, when he popped round. He could sell some of these, these opulent things that you have in this office and then you'd have more than enough for GFX. But would you use it at a wedding is the answer. And the, and the question, the answer for you, it's definitely no, isn't it? Not for, not for ca- um, no. candid work. No, no. portraiture. No. Boom, there is the, that's yeah. the thing. And for considered kind of storytelling uh, in, an, in an uncluttered environment like a wedding, absolutely. But opposite comes down to funds and, and hands down, if you've got the money yeah. for it and you, and you think you can use it, then great. But don't think you're going to be a discreet documentary no. photographer with that GFX 100. Enjoy the equipment though, Aaron. Sound, sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, I've been a bit of a with this one, I'm afraid. And uh, you didn't see this and I kind of hid it from you. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost thinking that you won't answer it. So if you don't feel you want to answer this one, you just say, I don't want to answer that one. We'll move on. Okay. You ready? Is it about my eyebrows? <laughs> right. Nathan Mardin. Mardin, I think. I think it's French. Or it could be Mardin, but I'm going to say Mardin. As I'm certain, this is for you, Kev, you've been flooded with emails about the X-Pro3. <laughs> I wanted to hear your opinions on the currently known feature set. I like the hidden LCD, but I find displaying settings on the back a bit redundant given all the external dials. The film simulation display, neat idea. Really enjoy the show, gentlemen. Thank you for the content. So do you want to answer that or not? Or do you want to wait until the actual real release? No, I'll answer it because the um, Fujifilm... It's no longer a secret, is it? It's no longer a secret because Fujifilm did their live preview of the camera. Um, which I was invited to, by the way, but couldn't go. Couldn't go, could you? Because I had a wedding. And um, anyway, uh, you know, who am I to begrudge going to Japan, maybe seeing a bit of the Rugby World Cup and uh, going to a wedding. Uh, anyway, um, that's beside the point. So so what we all saw there was uh, my good friend Bert and uh, Thomas Lazar were, were demoing the, well, not demoing, but getting their first look at the um, X-Pro3. X-Pro3, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think the, so for those of you who haven't seen that, if you go to the Fujifilm Global YouTube channel, you'll see the live broadcast uh, in repeat. And the, the big feature of the X-Pro3 is the, uh, they didn't talk about the, um, the specs or what sensor is in there or anything like that. So I'm assuming, much like everybody else is assuming, it's going to be the X-Trans 4 sensor, etc. But what they did show was this new LCD on the back. And the so it's a tilt screen that comes down. Uh, I think it will tilt down to 180 degrees by the looks of it on that video. And it has this what they're calling a hidden LCD. So you you kind of pull it down and then you can see the LCD. But it also has this sub monitor on the back, which will um, essentially show you the film simulation. It will show you your shooting. It will show you your shooting settings and various other things like that. So I, I'm guessing, looking at the marketing message that come from that. Um, video itself that it's uh, they're aiming this at kind of purist street photography type reportage people who are using the uh, viewfinder predominantly and are not shooting necessarily with the lcd that much now i don't think it's um i don't think it's you know it's remiss for me to say that i have been in discussions in the past about this camera and um you know, they actually showed some footage from a film where we were in uh, in Japan and Dubai actually talking about this uh, this camera. So the LCD on the back is something that was um, contentious. 
but I think that they have made the uh, the message is 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 very strong. You know, they they have the XT3, which is a phenomenal camera, and you know it's something I'll use a lot. And now they have the X Pro Three, or will have the X Pro Three, mm. that will be aimed at people who want this this almost analog experience in a digital world. And um, it's certainly not going to be for everybody. I feel that that screen on the back. Personally, for me, my my own personal opinion. I never wanted a tilt screen on the, the um, X-Pro3, never. Uh, I never, I, I just didn't want one. But, you know, the, the market out there is is crying out for one. And of course, that they, yeah. it's right for Fujifilm. But would you rather have just had a screen on the back that, 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 that you can? I know people say, yeah, you don't need to chimp because you can see it as you're going along. But actually, there are times. I mean, I, I can think of, uh, of a great time for wanting to see the back of the screen when you want the live view. For yeah. example, when you may be... Um, well, if you're if you're dragging the shutter in the evening at a wedding where you want the constant display to be on, so you're holding the camera out in front of you instead of at your eyes, you're not going to be able to do that. I mean, you could, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And I, I thought that that was really disappointing. I thought, I, I, I just thought. Well, you know, my take on it is actually after I watched that video last weekend when I was shooting my X Pro Two this weekend's wedding, yeah. I consciously thought about how much time I'm looking at the LCD on the back and. The only time that really I was looking at the LCD on the back was when I was going through the menu string, right, the menu system. Right. And will it be a problem if and when that camera comes out that I have to flip the screen down to go through the menus? Who knows? I, I won't be able to know that until I start using it. Yeah. Um, I think that's where the, the, the tricky situation might be for me. But for all intents and purposes, I, I you know, I, I, I memorized, or not memorized, but actually thought about how many times am I chimping on the back of the camera with the X-Pro2? Uh, and I didn't. I just didn't do much of it. So Did you I, consciously do less because you, you're trying to train yourself into perhaps using an X-Pro3? Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. It could have been a, some kind of subconscious thing going on. There. Where would the disadvantages be for you? The menu. That would and be that, it. That's it? Yeah, I think so. Having to look through the eyepiece for a menu. Would, well, or you, I mean, you by the looks of it, you, you can, can be able to flip down, that yeah, menu yeah, down, yeah, that yeah. screen down. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... I, I mean, it's not going to be a filming camera, is it? You're I, not, not going to use this above the X-T3 for filming. No. Well, I mean, I'm assuming, and again, we don't know for sure until I think the 23rd of October, yeah. that the specs will be similar to the X-T3 in terms of filming. But um, yeah, I mean, I would probably use the X-T3 just because it's it's more ergonomically designed for filming, for sure. I hope you didn't mind me throwing that question at you because uh, people are talking no, about that. Uh, honestly, you wouldn't believe how much yeah. from the moment that video went out. Yeah, you've had loads of... Uh, loads of emails, I'm sure. Right, your question, sir. Okay, so I have an email here from Jay Risdale, and it says, Hi, Neil and Kevin. I'm really enjoying the podcast, which I look forward to. Every week makes me laugh out loud. Hmm. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you doubt him. <laughs> he actually then says, not sure if this was intentional. Oh, uh, maybe not. <laughs> so my question concerns using client images in blog posts and on social media. Ooh. Can you please let me know how you raise this with clients and do you obtain their explicit consent? I know that you both blog post lots of images. Do clients sometimes insist that some or all of the images remain private? Uh, I'm a wedding photographer building up my portfolio and T's and C's make it clear that I would like to use images for blog posts and publicity with an opt out in advance of the wedding date if the clients who prefer privacy etc uh, etc et right so we actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago yeah we did maybe you missed that episode but I, th I think it's a really good subject so don't mind covering this one again but the reason why I, I read this one out again from Jay is because he 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 seems to have this option that you you explicitly mentioned in, in the previous time we talked about it it says that my T's and C's make it clear that I would like to use the images for blog posts and publicity with an opt-out option. Yeah. So if you give them the option, 
they're going to choose that every single time. So in my world, I don't mention it. I, if people say to me, we'd rather you didn't use the images, then fine, I will take that clause out of the contract. 99% of the time they don't. But if you have a, you know, if, if on your booking form, for example, you have a checkbox that says, are you okay for me to use these images? Then in a lot of cases, they're going to say no, just because that's the most natural thing to do. Yeah. Um, and don't think you're being, you know, naughty or rude or bad by sharing their pictures. You're a picture maker. That's what you do. You sell pictures. You have to show pictures to sell pictures. So my my advice straight away is is remove that opt-out option. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if people bring it up at the contract signing time, then fine. But don't give them an option. If, if somebody asks you to remove, though, you, you as you said last time, not a problem, is, is there at all? No, absolutely. But if, um, you know, if everybody asked me to remove, then, yeah, it would be a problem. I'd go out of business. Yeah, yeah. It'd be a dustman. Um, John Milner, thank you for your email. Um, this is more of a point than a question. I have no interest whatsoever in wedding photography or indeed weddings or marriage. <laughs> However, listening to your podcast from the start and enjoying every single one of them. You and Kev have a good on-air banter. It's great to listen to. I like the guest stuff, equipment, talking techniques. Just carry on with the same, please. John, thank you very much. Um, uh, the, uh, the, one of the reasons I'm reading this is because uh, we stopped doing the indulgent minute. Remember we did the indulgent minute, and that was one of the things that people said they'd like to d- dump out the show. So we stopped doing it. But please, um, I, I, appealing to your, your better nature, of which I know that you, that you all have uh, an extremely good nature anyway, um, if you get a, an opportunity to, make sure that you go to, um, uh, go to the, um, the, the Apple place where you can leave your reviews. Um, if, if, of course, you're listening through uh, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, the reviews um, have slowed down. The reviews have yeah. slowed down. So. Well, it's because we stopped doing the self-indulgent minute. Nobody got mentions on it anymore. Come so. on, come on, <laughs> come on, time but, to do but it. But l- listen, we do look at them, and we appreciate every single one. So uh, thank you very much for that. But thank you, John. I'm going to put you in the good guy pile, which is uh, just down here, next to the opulent gold fittings of, um, of a trapdoor. Well done. So I, last, last question. I, it's not really a question. It's a tip. Oh, so, okay. I'm going to give this is from Marius Peter in uh, Indiana. Uh, I'm going to give Marius a strap because uh, oh. I haven't done one yet this week. So, Marius Res- rescued you at the end. Marius is going to get this uh, strap for this tip. And I actually haven't read this tip out yet either. So, <laughs> so hopefully it's a good oh, tip. God. Warning, warning. <laughs> okay, it says, Hi, Neil. Oh, hang on. What about me? You're on there, aren't you? No, it just says, hi, Neil. All right. Well, it makes a change. Well, maybe you There should. was a question. I'm not sure you've got it. One that called me Noel this week. <laughs> maybe, you <should> just, <laughs> maybe you should read this out. Actually, I'm not sure I'm going to give him a strap. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm joking. Tell me a miserable sausage. I, I'm joking. I'm joking. Right, it says Usually here, it's me, they miss off anyway. Okay, it says here, hi, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Neil. Mario's from, in, uh, from the flat Indiana, uh, USA here. Yeah. Uh, I want to share a tip with uh, Fuji and Capture One Pro for Fuji users. I have created some JPEG profiles on my X-T3 with various settings, like Kev's Padilla or Velvia Bullmark. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We, we did, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Or well, last week, even. I shoot RAW and JPEG. Rarely I import the JPEGs. I edit my RAWs in Capture One Pro for Fujifilm. I import the RAWs, and voila! My RAWs look like the correspondent JPEG I used for the shoot. And that gives me a very good starting point in my edit, and obviously a better quality JPEG in the end. I find this is the most awesome feature of this combination, and now my questions oh there is a question as so well. he did have questions oh, hold on first of all let's let's talk about that bit okay so essentially what he's saying here is that your jpeg settings that you set in the camera are inherited by capture one when you import the rules right which is what lightroom does not do yeah um i did not know that that's a really good reason to use capture one isn't it and i would wow say, 
I, I, I'm going to take. I actually do you do, use Capture One? You've got Capture One. You've, you, well, you've funny used enough, it. just this morning before you turned up, I was. Um, I'm using it for some personal pictures. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I will and, test and, that. And do you like it more? Or I don't know. Yeah. See, the one thing that Capture One doesn't have for me is is that ability to um, work anywhere because there's no smart previews. There uh, is. Oh, is there? There apparently. Some, oh, somebody right. told me last week. Yeah. So, okay. So that's why I, I always thought there wasn't. Yeah, I think there is. And right. You, you can do it. So how? Please write and tell us. How easy it is to do it, I don't know. So the, the one thing I want to say about that JPEG thing is I just want to, I'm going to test that because if that is the case, that's very cool. But I remember speaking to somebody at Fujifilm and it, in fairness, this was a few months back. They seem to think that that didn't happen. So it might just be the JPEG preview that's being inherited and held onto. So what I'm saying is when you, if you shoot RAW plus JPEG, and you bring that into Lightroom, you'll and let's just say you shoot black and white with plus four shadows, right? You'll initially see that real black and white image with plus four shadows, and then that will be removed because that's the JPEG preview and you'll be left with the raw file. So what what what's happening with Capture One by the sounds of it is it's bringing in the raw and the, J, or the raw file and it's keeping that JPEG preview for you. Now, whether that actually trans, uh, transposes itself to when you look at the sliders on the right-hand side in Capture One and it says plus four shadows, I don't know. Okay, so that's that's what I wanna check. Uh, but it's a great tip. And if that is the case, then that's a brilliant thing, an absolute brilliant thing. Um, so thanks for that, Marius. And uh, I will send you the strap or we'll send you the email with the strap <laughs> details. And um, and now for my question. So he's, he goes on to say, um, are you guys thinking of having an ex-weddings conference in the United States? Ooh. Well, we did talk about this, didn't we? <laughs> we, we uh, perhaps not as an ex-weddings thing. We talked about a, a series of workshops. Yeah. Every time somebody mentions ex-weddings, my heart misses a beat and my blood pressure goes through the roof. <laughs> Gemma takes one step closer to the door. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Go, goes for the bottle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what I love? I've done some workshops in the United States and I've spoken at um, WPPI and PPA and all the other PPP things they have in America. And um, it's always great, really cool. I've done some street photography workshops and stuff out there and really, really enjoy it, really love it. So I think we should think about heading over there as a as a couple well <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure I'm ready for that but um, but I think it's a really nice idea and I, one, of, one of the things we discussed was actually taking the, the podcast on the road and doing what we did in Brighton do it in New York or, or LA or, mm. or I think Boston was on that list as well and that list by the way is, is still on the, uh, the, the, the Facebook page for us so if you want to put down a preference that'd be great mm. um, I think it's a lovely idea yeah. uh, really nice idea I'm not sure Indiana's a place though that's um well it is a place obviously but it's clearly a place he lives there that's right in the middle of nowhere isn't yeah. it pretty much not sure anybody would come to indiana would they mm. you're going to tell me differently now i know you are mm. but uh it's a lovely idea and i'd love to do that i love america mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay we'll think about that but thanks marius that one's been put in the strap uh, coming your yeah, way in the consider it very much pile oh that's it for this week oh before we and before we depart um x weddings conference which is not that far away now we're literally talking next month now um tickets are still available obviously maybe a little rundown of uh, a couple of the the highlights some of some of the some of the people talking okay so we've got um we've got a full day set of um talks we've got six uh, talks from the likes of me and we've got Wojtek Hordic coming over from the Republic. It's amazing, amazing photography. We heard from him, by the way, in an email this week that said he'd love to do an interview, but he's he's actually really boning up on his uh, English, English at the moment to be yeah. to be absolutely tip top for, for for Bath. And then he said he'd do an interview while he's there or perhaps after, which is fine. I completely understand that. I don't absolutely. want to frighten the poor chap to bits at the moment. No, no, no. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to seeing his stuff. Really looking forward to that. 
Um, and obviously we've got the two day workshops the day after one with yourself and you are talking yeah, about talking about sound and photo films and photo films using and film yeah yeah um, now obviously I'm going to say this because I'm the one that's trying to sell the tickets but yeah. uh, I remember going to see Neil's um, photo film talk and sound talk when we were I don't know it was in Reading or something we like that knee high to a grasshopper years and years and yeah. years and years ago and it really did change the way that I looked at um, well in the first instance stills but the way that you can use stills to tell a story was that um, the first time we ever met up um, no was it I don't know we're I, going back about no, 10 years now so. I think I met you first of all at Jess at Je- Jeff Askoff Jeff Askoff yeah. <laughs> at Jesse Askoff uh, it's, <laughs> it's been a bad week it's been a bad week uh, um, um, well I'm really looking forward to it it's going to be good fun yeah good fun and, uh, it's moved hotels it's gone to the it's gone to the posh one posh yeah. one yeah We've gone to the apex yeah, yeah. so yeah all the details on x-weddings.co.uk if you are thinking of coming please buy your tickets uh, soon if there are any left now um, hopefully there will still be some left and, and, I, I, and I know you wouldn't come to this because it's a, a social event but there is, there is a great social Social side to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference, of course, we were. I mean, it's not. It's not a Fuji cast. Um thing this but uh, when we met up with Fujicast listeners in Brighton we, we said right we're going for an Indian we were very definite about this weren't we uh-huh. Indian meal uh-huh. um, and we never managed to find an Indian restaurant in, in Brighton the ones that we, we were suggested no longer existed no. did they we, we went we literally walked to the street walked that street up and down and they weren't there anymore no, no Indian restaurants in no. Brighton so we, we went to a Lebanese which was good yep. so uh, that's it for this week's show if, you, if you've liked it help us by doing something that'll go a long way in getting the, the Fujicast out there uh, building a community and audience uh, we'd like to invest more time in recording interviews and taking the show on the road like we did in Brighton and like we're thinking about doing in America all that kind of stuff so if you leave a review you're an absolute star if you can share in any way say through a Facebook group uh, you're a member of or Twitter or via your podcast app then you are a complete legend a um, couple of seconds just to uh, turn those cogs night and keep them turning nicely for us thanks for your questions lifeblood of the show we can't shovel coal into the firebox unless you bring your questions to the party send them in via the website address which is click at fujicast.co.uk thank you to our, our guest this week Jeremy Dalder um, I thought it was a fascinating chat, chat and if you want to uh, speak to Jeremy personally then there are ways of doing that through the links that we'll leave for you uh, big love to our friends at Simpler Straps for letting us give away a camera strap each to our favourite email question of the week go to simpler.us uh, if you'd like to see more about uh, Simpler Music's from Blue Wednesday payoff for Kev this week is from Ali Stewart Kevin's Instagram is Kevin Mullins Photography see his films on YouTube at Documentary Eye his website is kevinmullinsphotography.co.uk I'm Ali Stewart my Instagram is Ali Stewart Photo and my website is alistewartphotography.co.uk and Ali is spelt with A-double-L Y and Stuart is spelt S-T-U-A-R-T. Neil's Instagram is Neil James. See his films on YouTube at Neil James Photo. His website is neiljames.com for pictures and one-to-one mentoring. I am Emily Ronnier. My Instagram is underscore Emily's Moments underscore and my website is www.emilysmoments.com Merci, bonne journée et au revoir. And we'll see you next week, which by the way is going to be another episode we're doing here from Shay Kev. We've come to Kev's studio, uh, which is a beautiful part of the world, this Malmesbury. Um, no wonder everything's so opulent and gold fittings. I mean, there's literally a car park of Rolls Royces as you go up the street. <laughs> so we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.